0: Welcome to the London 14 Society. Um, I don't know who's been here before. <laughs> okay, so who's not been here before? Some people are not putting their head about either so, thank you. Um, I guess hopefully you understand what we mean by 14. Uh, Roughly, we have talks and events and things about the sort of stuff you see in the 14 Times. Uh, we're inspired by the writer Charles Fork, who had a, an idiosyncratic and fascinating. Um, look at the world in science and nature, which we like to follow, with folklore and paranormal exploration in there as well. Um, we're, we're, you'll get it, but just follow us and you, you'll get it. Um, sometimes we have a quick round of reporting news, we have time to do that, um, but we'll sort of be with the speaker. We're going to start now, uh, John Clark will speak for about 50 minutes or so. We'll take a break to buy beer, peanuts, cups of tea, whatever you like. And then we'll come back for uh, announcements of future events and then questions for our speaker. Should be done by about nine, past nine or so. Uh, then we'll be in the bar afterwards where we generally talk about any old problems that come to our head. You're more than welcome to join us. Um, without further ado, um, I'm going to ask John how he would to be introduced. I'm just going to introduce him by his name. Um, I've read John's stuff for a long time. I'm very, very happy to introduce him for the first son to the London 14 Society. I um, also thought it was a good time to get people talking about the London Stone, seeing it's, it's in the news right now. So, enough of my waffle, please Big round of applause for John Clarke. Thank Thanks, Bob.
1: Uh, I've been interested in London Stone for a very long time, since as a curator of using my London, we used to get questions whenever it really got into the news because they'd only demolished the building in Cannon Street. We would get people writing and saying, "What is London Stone?" And we have to reply, "We don't know. Um, I set out to find out." So uh, what you're going to hear this evening is the sort of result of 20 years of digging and delving—not literally, as you're here—into um, the past of that uh, once famous stone, the last remnant of which. Until a few weeks ago, was in a, behind behind iron bars in a cage in the front of a rather undistinguished office building, number 111 Cannon Street in the city. You could see it from inside. If you were lucky in a glass case uh, with a bronze surround. <coughs> but it was recently removed from there. It's now in the Museum of London on display and will be for another couple of years before it goes back, when this building is pulled down and rebuilt uh, to a new location, perhaps rather more visibly on the front of the new building. So, London stone mystery and myth. First of all, the mystery. Well, the mystery of Londonstone is inherent in the history, which is what I really want to start with. It's the gaps in the history, or it's the absence of history that is the mystery itself. It's inherent in those very first records of it in the 12th century in various documents. Deeds of properties, for example, a property owned by Mr. Aidwecker, whose address was at London Stone. His name was at London Stone, who gave some property to uh, the Canterbury Cathedral. Or well, the second one there, let's, let's check her name. Yes, Cecilia. Cecilia, the <laughs> widow of Wolfwine of London, who granted to the Canterbury Cathedral once well, more a property, including the Stone House and other buildings, uh, just at the north of St Mary Botho Church, close to the stone that is called London Stone. It crawls Aylwood <coughs> of London Stone. A great fire started in his house and burned down most of London. And the most famous, of course, is Henry. Henry, son of Aylwin of London Stone. He was the first mayor, first Lord Mayor of London in about 1189. So people were getting their names from the stone. They were getting their address from the stone. It's a location. It's a locality. Nobody in the 12th century ever says what it is. Why it is. Why it's called London Stone. Uh, you suspect, given that 1152 reference, that they're saying it's the stone that's called London Stone, that it's already a bit mysterious. We don't know why it's called London Stone, but it it's the stone that is called London Stone. So here's a reconstructed map, recent publication of uh, the centre of uh, 12th, 13th century London works, yes. Down here is the Church of St Mary Bothaw on the site of the um, booking hall of Cannon Street station and presumably Cecilia's property was just to the north of it. Candlewick Street, Candlewright Street, now Cannon Street, London Stone, the Church of St Swithin which has already been called the Swithin by London Stone um, in the 16th century. And behind it again to the north the great property belonging to the Fitzalwin family, where Henry Fitzalwin, the 1st Mayor, lived, grew up. Um, they have a sort of private entrance, a passageway down the west side of the church, leading straight out into Pallant Street, just opposite London Stone, hence presumably the name. But none of these references tell us why the stone is called London Stone, what it's doing, who erected it, how old it was. In the 12th century. And it doesn't appear in history either. It's just a location, it's a place. Until that is 1450. Jack Cade, leading a rebellion against the corrupt government of Henry VI, um, leads his men into London, 3rd of July, <coughs> Friday. And um, this is an extract from what is, was the standard account of the events. They came into London across the bridge. He uh, rode through diverse streets of the city. As he came by London stone, he struck upon it with his sword and said, Now is Mortimer, which was the nom de guerre had adopted, Lord Mortimer, Now is Mortimer Lord of this city. Now the author, Robert Fabian, who was an alderman of London, but wasn't actually born at the time of these events. Doesn't explain why Jack Cade did it. Neither does anybody else. Nobody says why Jack Cade thought, just right, the ceremonial sword and declared himself Lord of London. Um, many chroniclers leave it out entirely. The most recent definitive academic book on Jack Cade doesn't mention it. Clearly not thought important at all by an academic historian. Um, one chronicler puts it on a different day entirely. That is John Bennett, who was writing only 12 years after the event and presumably had heard Ivan's accounts. He said it happened the following day, when Lord Say, the rather unpopular um, treasurer, was dragged from Guildhall and executed in Cheapside. His head was chopped off, his naked body was dragged through the streets. And when they came to a great stone, Jack Coates won't round it, striking it with his sword. So either he did it twice on two days, or nobody could actually remember when he did it. Nobody remembered remember why he did it. And this is the only time anybody ever strikes their sword on London stone, as far as they can make out. It's not traditional, it's nothing to do with mayors, it's nothing to do with kings visiting London, it's nothing to do with the Lordship of London. I think it was Jack Cade playing to the public. This is called London Stone. I can take London as easily as I strike this stone with my sword. It gets developed, however. But the stone remains a landmark. When it appears on a map, this is a so-called copper plate map, two of the copper plates from which it was printed are in the Museum of London. This is very much enlarged, but there you see, on the north side of the road, is St Swithin Church. this door and tower. Immediately opposite, a little sort of rectangle in the road, labelled London Stonder. London Stone. This map doesn't have any, many words on it. A few streets are named. Uh, important places like Guildhall are marked. But the mapmaker thought London stone was important enough or well-known enough to put it on his map and label it. We can't make out from the map what exactly it looked like. It's not to scale. This is, uh, this is an interesting, as it were, bird's-eye-view map. Uh, but vaguely rectangular, as I is all you would say. And descriptions don't help. Here's John Stowe. His monument is in St Andrew's Undershark Church. He was London's sort of chronicle, chronicler, uh, local boy, tailor by trade, wrote a survey of London, detailed account of London in the 1590s. He simply says, when talking about Cannon Street, near unto the channel, the gutter, is pitched upright a great stone. Called London Stone. It's fixed in the ground very deep. It's fastened with bars of iron. He's the only Bosnian who mentions bars of iron. Well, I'd really like to know how those worked. It's either one so strongly set that if carts do run against it, the wheels be broken and the stone itself unshaken. It's, it's, it's already getting a, a reputation for solidity. But how big was it? John Stony knew it so well, he didn't bother to say. It's just a great stone. Fortunately, we have one foreign visitor, a Frenchman, Monsieur L. Brenard. We don't know his first name. He, in 1578, produced what is actually the very first guidebook to London for foreigners. He wrote in French. His manuscript is in the Vatican Library. Fortunately, it was recently translated and published by the London Topographical Society. He called it The Singularities of London. Here it is. The French is actually quite easy to read if you did French at school. I'll translate it anyway. It's a great rock or stone. It's squared off. It's planted deep in the earth. It stands about three feet high above the ground, two feet wide and one foot thick. It's not a great monolith, it's actually quite small. Um, those feet, by the way, are the French uh, pied de roi, which are slightly bigger than French feet, uh, English feet, but not enough to make much difference. So we're still think, talking about that's three feet high, two feet across, and one foot front to back. But it was even smaller after the Great Fire. Here's John Albury describing it. The fire, of course, destroyed the whole area around most of central London, went up. The church of St Swithin was burnt out, so was St Mary Bothaw. London Stone survived, but it was the worst for wear. It's described by John Albury. He said the fire had it, and actually sort of destroyed the surface, and that it was now only two inches above the road, still surviving. Well he might have, he's running in 1673, um, the road surface was actually raised after the Great Fire while the de- debris from a rail was used to, to make up the road surface. So it wasn't entirely three feet burnt away to two inches. I think it, quite a bit of it was the road surface rising up about it. Um, but shortly afterwards the stone seems to have been actually lifted from that position or replaced in the same position with a little stone cupola to protect it. Here's what seems to be the earliest picture of the Wren the Church of St. Swithin, that survived until the Second World War. And um, in the foreground, enlarged there, this strange little stone cage with a round hole in the side, like a porthole, through which you look to see the actual London stone. John Stripe. 1720 talks about uh, the fact that it's now been cased over with a new stone handsomely wrought cut hollow underneath to shelter it and defend the old venerable one so it's got this it's venerable it's it lasts it's something we've got to preserve. nobody's really thought about why i don't think um and it is disputed because um it's in the way of the traffic you can see there's a cart coming up um, but it's attracting visitors, there's two chaps there sort of, not actually waving got a sword in it, but waving a stick. Um, and it does turn up, in any account of a visitor to London. The various things they go to see are the lions at uh, the Tower of London, um, they go to Westminster to see the monuments, they go to see the whalebone of Whitehall, they go to see the boss of Billingsgate, um, and they go and see London Stone. Nobody knows why, it's there, we've got to go and see it. So, 1742, it's moved. It's moved across the road, still in its little stone cupola, and set up on the left there, just beside the main door of St Swithin's church on the pavement. 1798, it's moved again, this time to the blocked up door, the matching door at the east end. Of the church. And you see, it's still got that little cupola built around it. This time it's actually built back into the blocked up wall of the church. So we've now only got, as it were, the front half of it. The second time it was moved in 1798, somebody did take the trouble to draw it out of its case. There's a couple of sketches in the Worley Gordon Library, now the London Metropolitan Archive. Um, I suspect they're by John Carter, who will come to him a moment later, uh, but uh, the study of this sort of date. And on the right, we've got it sort of lying up against a bit of the wall of uh, mm. St. Swithin's Church. It looks about four foot high, and the measurements that. Uh, the Frenchman gave back in, in uh, the 1570s for the width, two feet, and depth, the one foot, so seems to be valid. So when he saw it, I think this three foot's worth was probably sticking out of the ground. Um, there, you've got these strange grooves in the top, which we'll see later, which certainly by the 19th century were right, described as the marks made by Jack Spr- um, Jack Cade's when he hit it. There's some comments about it, it must have been a very big sword. Then shortly afterwards it was moved again. It was moved to a location halfway along the south wall of the church, built into the wall but still with that same stone frame around it with a little cupola up top. Here's an in I think must be the earliest photograph of St. Swithin's Church. There's it in the middle there, in the 1860s. But later in the 1860s, a metal grill was put up to protect it, and an inscription, both in Latin and English, on the top of the which, more or less, explains we don't know what it is. <laughs> it's possibly Rome. Yeah. Then, of course, the Second World War. The church in the midst, was burnt out. The ruins were left standing for a very long time while the church commissioners decided what to do. It was declared to be redundant. Um, it was like several churches. Um, The inside was opened up as a little garden for city workers to have their lunches in. But it stood like that until about 1960, when uh, Professor Grimes, the Roman and Medieval London Excavation Council, carried out a small excavation inside. But he wasn't interested in London stone because it wasn't in situ, and it wasn't Roman. Well, possibly wasn't Roman. Uh, So the church was demolished. The stone was moved to, in 1961, put on display the then Guildhall Museum, which was in the Royal Exchange at that time. The Troy legend was disproved. We'll come back to the Troy legend later on. Um, but there it is. And if you remember that little round porthole in the frame, the stone frame, the later photographs show that it had actually been opened up into a sort of keyhole shape. And there on the front of the stone in that 1960s black and white photograph, you can still see the soot stain, that same keyhole shape. The bit of the stone that wasn't protected by like stone cage has got 200 years worth of uh, London soot and grime taped on it. Then in uh, October 1962 we went back into the front of this rather undistinguished 1960s office building. Which was first of all occupied by the, um, the Bank of China. And there it remained until a few weeks ago, going through various ownerships. Um, there's long been plans to rebuild, and the fate of London Stone gets discussed every time. There have been plans to move it to a different site entirely that the City of London didn't like and refused planning permission. But the present owners of the site are going ahead. <coughs> the building is, as you were, condemned. I haven't even passed it in the last couple of weeks. So, a few weeks ago, 28th of April, London Stone Day, um, staff from the Museum of London moved in, removed it from its little <coughs> space inside. Using silicon strips so it could slide easily onto that little trolley, then trundled around to our on the band around the corner, and taken to the museum, where it is now on display in what I think we call the uh, War, War, Plague and Fire gallery, used to be called the Cuban Stewart Gallery. So there it It is, is. it's on display, I take no responsibility for the the caption, but uh, you can see the same old grime on the front of it, we weren't allowed to clean it, or well, not too much, because it is a scheduled object, or listed structure, Very really two-star, but anyway, so we, we're allowed to take the dust off it, and we've done all sorts of photographs, we've done things like um, laser, 3D laser scans, so we now have a virtual thunderstorm we can play with. So that's in brief, is the history. And you'll see the, the gaps in it create the mystery. Why this, why that? But the gaps in it have also created the myth. The myth of London, so, is bound up with the mythology of London itself. And for that, the mythology of London itself, we, depend very much upon one man, Geoffrey Monmouth. Writing in the 1130s, he created from all sorts of sources a history of the kings of Britain, all the way through from the first settlers, who of course were Trojans, led by Brutus, um, up until the Anglo-Saxon period. He claimed it was based on an ancient book in the British language that nobody else has ever seen. It is basically fiction, it's a historical novel. Um, But you can still drag from it bits of pre-existing traditions he's picked up. You can see where he's taken a piece of somebody else's history and elaborated on it, distorted it, changed the name so you can't recognize where it's come from. So Geoffrey tells us that at a date that some people have calculated was in 1108 BC, a group of several thousand settlers who were descendants of those who had fled into exile after the destruction of Troy by the Greeks about 60 years earlier, led by Brutus, who was the great grandson of Aeneas, came to the land then called Albion. And in this 15th century, illustration, you see the first thing he had to do was kill off all the giants. So you come to New Land, first of all you, you wipe out the Aborigines, and then you build a city. And there's Geoffrey, there's uh, Brutus, down, overseeing the building of a city <coughs> by the River Thames, which he calls Troia Nova. Trinobantum, New Troy. And Geoffrey, of course, explains that that was to become London. So, Brutus founded London. Geoffrey doesn't mention London stone, but it's very tempting, isn't it, if you're building up beyond Geoffrey, as we wanted to do. What did Brutus do when he founded his city? Did he have something to do with London stone, this big stone in the middle of the town? Well, by the early 14th century, that story is in the air. Or at least there's one extremely obscure Early fourteenth-century poem in English, existed about a handful of manuscripts. Um, that adds various things that aren't in Geoffrey, such as Brutus set London stone, and this word he said right anon, "What king that comes after my day, forsooth, he say may, that Troy was never so fair to see, so London shall wax after me." So London will be greater, fairer. And Troy ever was but the idea never caught on. <laughs> this uh, poem was never published. Well uh, that's not true. Um, one version was published in the 19th century but didn't include this stanza. Um, otherwise you have to wait to the 1930s before anybody really thinks it's actually worth publishing. It has this extraordinarily boring name um, Oh, The Anonymous Short English Metrical Chronicle. <laughs> uh, it's basically a history of Britain in verse, from the time of Brutus to the time of the Second. So you can imagine cramming all that into a, a short poem. So it's it actually one stanza of a king, at sometimes one line. However, we'll see later that it, this idea was actually revived writing in, independently invented later. Instead, by the 16th century, you're finding that it's being attributed to another king, another mythical king. Because Geoffrey has to explain how on earth did Troyanova become London. And he does that by making use of this chapel King Ludd, who rebuilds London, calls it Kaya Ludd, or Ludd's town. Later, London. And um, is buried at Ludgate, I believe. Right, so Monsieur Bernard comes to London. He is told by somebody, tourist guides, this is, they're all definitely in the 16th century, um, that uh, King Lud put up London Stone. He had the stone placed there for several reasons. One of which was to, as a marker, because some people have said that he extended London westwards to Ludgate, where he was later buried. In fact, nobody knew. And John still at least admits it. The cause why this stone was set there, the time when, or other memory I hear of, is none. He recounts various hypotheses that people have come up with, like it was marked to mark the center of the city. Uh, he points out it wasn't in the center of the city. <laughs> um, it was there where people paid debts, or came to agreements, as they do in the Royal Exchange today, he says. Um, it was put up by somebody called John of London Stone. Of course, that's sort of got it round the wrong way. Um, but his younger contemporary, the antiquarian uh, William Camden, his um, great volume, Britannia, written in, first of all in Latin in 1586, then translated into English a few years later, he has no doubts about it at all. It was quite clearly a Roman milestone because it was, he says, in the middle of the city if you only measure the city in one direction, east-west. It was the wrong point north-south, but east-west it was in the middle. And, since in the middle of the city, that's where you took all your measurements from, like Charing Cross or whatever, um, throughout the province of Britain. It's like the Miniarium uh, Aureum uh, in the Forum in Rome, from which measurements supposedly throughout the Roman Empire were taken. This is guesswork. It's nothing more than that. The trouble is William Camden has a reputation, had a reputation. It's always quoted. It's quoted as if this is what archaeologists of today think because one antiquarian in 1596 said it. It just gets repeated as being, (coughs) indeed it's repeated on the caption in the uh, um, using London. Well, <laughs> more or less. Um, the myth is beginning to develop because that's just as mythical as some of the, shall we say, occult ideas we're going to come to later. Um, there's something a bit 14 about the name William. Watch it, watch it, watch it. It's another William. Adding to the myth. William Shakespeare. The play that we today call Hangers' Part 2 brings on to the stage Jack Cody except of course in the television version of it a few weeks ago, where they cut the whole scene out. But Shakespeare comes up with a marvellous compression of events. Not only does uh, um, he's taken the earlier chronicle accounts of Jack he's pulled together bits of it and put them into one. Dramatic scene that makes Cade into a sort of uh, uh, sinister buffoon who strides in, strikes the stone with his sword, or in some versions with a staff, seats himself on it as, anoth- as on a throne, issues various fairly ludicrous royal decrees, and takes summary justice on the first one of his followers who. Uh, Breaks one of his rules by calling me Jack Cade instead of Lord Mortimer. This is a marvelous theatre. It isn't history. This never happened. And the problem is that people don't read Chronicles, they read William Shakespeare. So this influences strongly the view we have of what Jack Cade is doing at London Stone. Stukeley, the antiquary of the early 18th century. Uh, nothing much new about London stone. He did include it in what seems to be like the very first published attempts to reconstruct a map of Rome and London. Here it is on the right. If it looks a bit odd, it's because he's put west to the top. There's the river on the the left, there's the line of the city wall, you can see, and a grid of streets inside. And he accepts William Camden's view. It's a miliare, London stone. And he describes it in the coming text, the lapis miliaris, from which distances are reckoned. He locates it close to where he thought the forum stood, because he didn't. Um, he includes these little temples here St. Mary Woolnoth, St. Mary de Mary Le are church sites where rebuilding after the Great Fire of Roman remains. He's assumed they were Roman temples. So there's not much archaeology in this map of Roman it's very literary, hence the Miliarium. But Stuart, of course, did popularise the image of the ancient British druid (laughs) and their rites and so on. They took place around stones. So we find even John Stripe in the 1720s saying he'd been advised by an exquisite British antiquary, not uh, Stoople in this case, that the Druids had pillars of stone in veneration. Later on, Thomas Pennant said in the 90s, some have supposed it to have been British, which might have been part of a Druidical circle. So here it's it's not just one stone, there was a great stone circle which it fall apart. Now that might sound familiar if you know the works of another William, William Blake, in his great illustrated in engraved plates, poems, Jerusalem, and Milton. So, to him, it's a druid altar, an altar where human sacrifices take place. The druids' golden knife rioted in human gore, in offerings of human life. They groaned aloud on London stone. They groaned aloud at Tyburn's brook. But he's also influenced by Jack Cade. Not the Jack Cade of history, but the Jack Cade of William Shakespeare. Because London Stone becomes a place of justice. It becomes a place and a throne <coughs> on which characters like Loss or Albion can seat themselves to dispense justice. Here's, um, this is Albion saying, Bring him to justice before heaven here upon London Stone. But it's also a central point, a central marker in William Blake's essays. Very <clears throat> really central indeed. It's central to Golganoosa, that mythical vision of London eternal. From London Stone to Blackheath East, to Hounslow West, to Finchley North, to Norwood South. William Blake loved London in the widest sense. So these names come in. Meanwhile, there does seem a growing sense that London and Stone might have had more than a practical function. It, it, It affected perhaps the continuity of London, the age of London, the strength, the power of London. Here's John Carter, who might have drawn those drawings of it in uh, 1798, um, and the pseudonym An Architect, writing the Gentleman's Magazine. He wrote a whole series of long letters and articles to the Gentleman's Magazine complaining about the demolition of medieval buildings, uh, innovation in architecture. He hated classical architecture, and in fact he's one of the first leaders of the Gothic revival. So the fact that they were moving London Stone from the east end of the church to the middle of the church really upset him. It's innovating. And London Stone, he tells us, was the awful informant of the antiquity of the town, the symbol of the great. City's quiet state. So it's, become, it's becoming symbolic, it's becoming symbolic in people's minds. And it's becoming even more than that. By the end of the 19th, 18th century, the 19th, people are using the word palladium about it. In former ages, not now, we are, we're enlightened, of course, by the end of the 18th century. But in former ages, people regarded it as the Palladium Abundant. Palladium, of course, originally, was the statue of Pallas Athene in the city of Troy that protected the city. And it wasn't until it, one of the Greeks managed to steal it and carry it away that it was possible for the Greeks to actually conquer, capture, and destroy the city of Troy. So Palladium was a talisman of full protection. So it's- there's this feeling by the end of the 18th century that London so had that sort of atmosphere about it. But none of these writers at the end of the 18th century—they talk about it, superstitious veneration and days of old. No one quotes a document, a contemporary document, that says that. You have to wait until 1862 for the first appearance of a medieval proverb. So long as the stone of Brutus is safe, so long shall London flourish. Right. Uh, Always quoted, every newspaper account of London's stone, every comment in the media about moving it, says, of course there is an ancient saying, so long as the stone of Brutus is safe, so long shall London flourish. It took me ages to track that down to its origin. It was invented in 1862. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Uh, I may be wrong, but uh, knowing, the, knowing about the man who first quotes it, I really don't think anybody else uh, had it or written in mine at all. In 1862, a brief letter appeared in the Magazine Notes and Queries. It's the reason that people find it is because it's actually headed Stonehenge. And It starts by saying that clearly uh, the altar stone at Stonehenge is made of the same stone as uh, London Stone, which isn't true. Um, and then it goes on to tell us a previously unrecorded tradition. That Brutus of Troy had brought the stone from Troy, had set it up in the Temple of Diana, in his new city of New Troy, that the ancient British kings swore their oaths of office upon it, and that there was an ancient Welsh proverb, and excuse my Welsh, but ran trawain prydain which means something like, as long as there's the stone of Pudine, uh, London shall expand. He then puts in an English translation of the Welsh. So long as the stone of Reuters shall be safe, so long shall London flourish. Uh, well, I can't trace any Welsh verse to that effect, neither can anybody else. And I won't go into Prudine, who he was and why he wasn't Brutus. So who was the author? Well, he signed himself Mor Merion, which is a misprint. It's actually more Marion, Morgan of Merioneth. Morgan of Merioneth was the Welsh bardic name adopted by one of the co-organisers of the great Icedford of Langothland. In 1858, he was actually the Reverend Richard Williams Morgan – William, again. Uh, a rather notorious, free-thinking Welsh priest, Anglican Church in Wales, great campaigner for the use of the Welsh language in churches and schools, particularly upset about the habit of the Anglican Church of appointing bishops to Wales who couldn't speak Welsh. <coughs> Uh, really got him in trouble with the Welsh authorities, the, the church authorities over that. Wallace got excommunicated. Here in a uh, cartoon in the, the Welsh version of Punch in 1858, you can see him in his bardic robes, with a whip and a leek in his hand, consigning <laughs> the English speaking bishops to hell. He had an extraordinary career. He's not in the DNB, I mean, he really ought to be. Uh, suddenly his view set out in a book called St Paul in Britain, yes. which he completed in 1861. The origin of the British as opposed to papal Christianity argued that it was St Paul who had come to Britain, evangelized the Britons, converted the Druids, who were sort of proto-Christians anyway, converted to Christianity, And thus, the ancient British church had nothing to do with St. Peter's Church in Rome. It was a totally separate foundation. This led him a few years later to actually set up to re-found, re-establish the ancient British church, with himself as Archbishop of Carleon. Uh, Later on, he's he's back in the Church of England as a a curate. But he did while he was... That church is still going. It's gone through various changes of name and things, but... The church he founded can still be traced. Um, But he also wrote the British Cumbria or Britons of Cambria, which is a rather extraordinary history of the Welsh people from the days of Brutus of Troy all the way through to the days of pre-Victoria, with a little genealogical table that traces pre-Victoria's ancestry back to Brutus. Um, I don't think even the Welsh believed it. it was translated into Welsh. I've looked at the copy of the Welsh edition in the British Library. Nobody' even cut the pages <laughs> in 150 to 60 years since it was written. Um, but he was convinced, and it's that story of Brutus and that he enlarges his idea. there. He tells us that Londonstone was actually the plinth on which pa- uh, Palistohenne had stood. Uh, and was Brought indeed, to Troy. But he doesn't give any verses. He doesn't give any Welsh verse, he doesn't give any English verse. I think he invented a bit, as he did a few years later. But remembering that back in the early 14th century, somebody else had thought that Brutus set London stone, it's not impossible that um, something came through. He certainly couldn't have read that poem. He certainly couldn't have read that early 14th century poem. But... Uh, every time I look at the subject, I find little hints I hadn't spotted before. So we might find the stone of group just turning up earlier. At first, Morgan's rather eccentric theories don't seem to caught on. It's certainly not in academic circles. Academics like Lawrence Scott, great folklorist, also town clerk of the London County Council. Uh, great interest in folklore, um, with his wife, Luther, both of them very prominent in the folklore scene at the end of the 19th century. Um, well, he's, as it were, fashionable folk- for folklore in the end of the 19th century. His view, of course, is that he was a London's fetish stone that it's the last survival of a very primitive pre-Roman London. Here he is. Uh, in early Aryan days, sets the date and everything else, when a village was first established, a stone was set up. Now, I'm not sure how he knows this, uh, but <laughs> it's one of the, if you read J.D. Fraser and so on, it's, it's that sort of technique of studying folklore and anthropology. Uh, to this stone, the headman of the village made an offering once a year. And clearly, the, he does actually say later on, the Lord Mayor of London is the descendant of the original village headman. Um, Grant Allen, another interesting character. He wrote early science fiction, some rather controversial mm-hmm. novels. He wrote popular science books, popularising science to the, the masses. He was a bit upset that uh, G. L. Gong got him first, because it was his view as well that London Stone is the very oldest and most sacred relic of ancient London. It is, in point of fact a city fetish. However, uh, Richard williams Norman's English proverb comes up In an article, a couple of pages, in a very popular magazine, Chambers' Journal, in 1888, when you read it, you realise that the author has used um, (coughs) William Morgan's letter uh, as one of his sources, not very much else. He tells us. A saying to the effect that so long as the zone of Brutus is safe, so long shall London flourish. London's zone has already passed through on many vicissitudes. There is reasoned hope that it will survive for some little time to come, so that there is still hope for the prosperity of London. Which I think would probably agree with if, you, if the trouble of actually existed. Uh, he doesn't give the Welsh version, so the Welsh version gets totally forgotten. Everybody quotes the English. Everybody, right up to people like. Peter Ackroyd, are using this. Although they don't realise it, this is their source. (coughs) And it's from this article that another folklorist, Louis Spence, picks it up. I don't know whether you know his book of legendary London, 1937, it's a great read as though you don't believe it. Um, (laughs) Spence brought together Archaeological evidence for London, both in prehistoric times and Roman times, but brought it together with what he called traditions. And his traditions include the work of Geoffrey and Monmouth, perfection. fiction. But he didn't trust archaeologists anyway, he calls them archaeologists of the tape measure school. He much preferred a good old tradition. And on the basis of what Chambers' journal told him about uh, London Stone. I believe that its presence provides evidence of the fact that the site of the city was formerly a high place of the proto-druidic religion of the early inhabitants of the Bronze Age Riverside settlement of London. But we haven't found that Bronze Age. Well, we're, we're sorry, we're, we're archaeologists of the your School, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, now, there's a work that Spence mentions in his bibliography, but doesn't actually quote. And that's Elizabeth Gordon, prehistoric London, its mounds and circles, 1914. And here she is, talking about the great stone circle on the site of St. Paul's Cathedral, which archaeologists have taken measures will have missed as well. At the highest grounds of the Western Hillock, where St. Paul's now stands, might have been seen service against the sky, the mighty unhewn monoliths of the Druidic Circle. No trace of the circle remains. A little distance to the southeast stands a single obeliskal pillar, or index stone, preserved behind iron bars in the wall of St. Swithin's Church, opposite Cannon Street Station. Well, Elizabeth Gordon was one of the early exponents of alignments, drawing lines on maps, connecting ancient monuments and features. So, it's not surprising there is a London Stone Day line. Um, Watkins himself, man who either invented ley lines or awarded the public attention, which who he, who he takes you to, um, talks about London stone. He calls it obviously a mark stone, but as far as I can make it, he didn't actually draw a ley through it. This one comes from Paul Deborah, the London ley, linking the legendary tower and the gate hills through St. Martin's Lydgate Church, London Stone and Hollows Church. I'm not convinced, it's only got three definite points on it anyway. But perhaps the most developed or
0: geometric series, is Christmas Reeds Earth Stars, this great
1: mandala Stretching all the way from uh, Barnet to Croydon, across <laughs> Greater London, with one line on it that goes through London Stone. And through on-site mediumship, Bristol Street uh, discovered that this London Stone was up the last stone remaining of a great circle, <coughs> broken up to uh, build London's walls, the Opferous Stone, the central naval stone. Now, oddly parallel to these studies of geomancy, omphila stones and the like, and earth mysteries, is this modern literary literary passion for psychogeography. And I can't actually tell the difference. <laughs> um, here's a description from the New Statesman of the U in two thousand six. A particular kind of mental and imaginative mapping often associated with writers such as Peter Ackroyd and Ian Sinclair. The present-day city chronicler, attuned to echoes of the past, prowls around in search of psychological ley lines. to Divine strange, visual and acoustic coincidences evidence the still potent presence of darkness, history and texture. And here indeed is Ian Sinclair, who is like a John Carter back in 1798, very worried about the moving of these things. Deliberate misalignment, Temple of Mithras, which is of course going to move again, uh, London Stone, surviving effigies from Nudgate. They're violating the integrity of the city's sacred geometry. Part of a process, all the ritual markers of the city have been shifted. Not by much, just enough to do damage, to call up pity whirlwinds small vortices of bad faith. It seems to be something with Margaret Thatcher, but I couldn't quite work that out. <laughs> well, these developments in the mythology of London, so obviously well meant and certainly believed in by the people who put them forward. But there are a couple that came up fairly recently that I'm not too sure about. They appear on this website, H2G2, in 2002, without warning. They relate to a legend, which I have not found anywhere else, that King Arthur called Excalibur out of London Stone, and to Dr John Dee, who apparently was fascinated by the supposed powers of London Stone and lived close to it for a while. Well, he never lived close to it. I haven't read everything he wrote, which would be a massive task, but I have read all the biographies of him, none of which mention London's Zone at all. I do not know where this came from. If nobody in the audience does, I'm delighted to hear it. I, I think it's somebody having, I think it's a bit mischievous. I think it's deliberately adding to the
0: myth.
1: I'm doing myself, I don't <laughs> But the mythification has also continued in fiction urban fantasy. Those fantastic novels, mostly written for children and young adults, but not always. Um, writers like China Miegel have done it, in Kraken, who who's done it. So Here's Charlie Fletcher in 2008, reminding us that that good is there not to protect the stone from us, to protect us from the stone. The malevolence of artists. <laughs> so in urban fantasy, Modern City is not just a background, it's actually quite a bit threatened by the occult or supernatural events making up the, the story. So Interestingly, all these, sto- these stories start in the 21st century. It's not really in fiction until the last 10-15 years. So, History hasn't helped, which I think we can explain the growth of the mythology. Can archaeology help? Well, first of all, there's no point digging up the middle of the canisteries. Like, you know, the site where the site stood. All you'll find is an underground railway station. Um, it was all ripped out, quarried out, to a depth of about 40 feet in 1884, during the building of the Metropolitan District Railway. It was rather nice plans or elevations of the London Transport Museum. And I don't think there's any record for the 1880s of anything being found there. They didn't find the stump of the stone. If they did, they just shoved it on the wheelbarrow and carted it away. They were working under pressure. I mean, we of a lot of work was done at night. So I don't think they were really keeping an eye out for the archaeology. And that, the best of the archaeology dates from the 1660s after the Great Fire, when there are actually several reports. And um, Robert Hooke, who was appointed by the City of London as one of the surveyors to oversee the rebuilding of the city after the Great Fire, he actually got some workmen to dig down around the stone to find out what was happening down below. And they finally went down for 10 feet. Below the road surface. The bottom was very strongly founded, big foundation. One calls it um, a kind uh, 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 describes it as very hard Roman cement. Now ten feet below the street level would actually take you to Roman levels. So it's not impossible we had a ten foot high monolith of some sort of standing on Roman ground level, gradually being covered up as the road level moves around it. And uh, John Albury's conclusion here, it was a kind of obelisk, right actually, getting towards the truth. However, what date was that obelisk if it was an obelisk? So finally, let's look at the stone itself. We have some brand new photographs from the number of doctors. On the left there, you can still see the dark, sooted, Front, the keyhole shape. The back, there's an extraordinary erosion was honeycombed, pitted with uh, um, some sort of erosion going on. We must actually compare these again to the pictures that were made in 1798 to see how recent that erosion actually is. It obviously didn't affect the front. But here is the top. Here are those very strange worn grooves that I would like to know the explanation for, I don't know as yet, I think. Um, it was seen like this, and actually standing around it, that I suddenly realised it was, wasn't the shape I thought it was. From descriptions, um, from those old photographs, I'd assumed it was vaguely rectangular, that the corners would have been square and had been rounded off by erosion. But no, um, they're rounded. Um, the, the two, as it were, sides do seem to curve, the semicircles. So, uh, what, what that tells us, about the shape of the whole thing, I don't know. But ah, well, what stone is it? Well, I'm very grateful for, to uh, James Wright, a molar of the latest thoughts about it. It is, indeed, an oolitic limestone from that big band of Jurassic limestone crossing all the way across Middle England from uh, Somerset to uh, Lincolnshire. Uh, the closest parallels in becoming coming from the Cotswold area, from Drostyshire. And we do know that stone from that area was reaching London in the Roman period. So it's not, a Druidic monument. The stone probably came to London in the Roman period. That doesn't tell us when it was erected. The Anglo-Saxons reused Roman stone a lot. But if it's Roman, we can go back to a suggestion made many years ago by my old colleague Peter Marsden, archaeologist in the city of London in the 1960s who pointed out that the location of the stone was right in front of this very big building, much of which lay under Cannon Street Station, Bush Lane, uh, which he thought, although it's now not so well, uh, not thought so strongly now, might be the uh, Governor's Palace of the province of Britain. He saw not only in front of it, but apparently un- aligned on the middle of it. So it might be something erected in front of that Roman structure. It might indeed be a part of, say, a gateway, a formal gateway, still surviving the last remnants above ground of this building. But the Saxons, I say, might well have brought a piece of stone from somewhere else and erected it. And we do that name. It certainly wasn't called Lacus Londiniensis by the uh, the Romans. It gets that name later on. Surely it is the Anglo-Saxon. <coughs> its the late saxon it has been called London Stone for the last time. So London Stone certainly, if that's how it relates to the Roman plan, this is how it relates to the Anglo-Saxon. There's this grid of streets laid out within the Roman walls at the end of the 9th, early 10th century. This is the period when, according to the Anglo Saxon Chronicle, Alfred the King founded Londonburg. When Anglo Saxon settlement, which had previously been out on the Strand area, Londonwich, Witch, or Witch, have Square, on Garden area, where it's exclamations of almost 30 years produced the evidence for this early such-and-town. Alfred seems to have moved uh, settlement back inside the walls, the defence against the Viking attacks, and laid out a grid of streets. And London Stone is not only right in the middle, but it's actually on the east west axis of this uh, uh, new town. So, was it erected then? Did they just find a nice piece of Roman masonry for somewhere erected and say, This is our fetish stone, even? It is the stone erected in the centre of this new settlement. I can't find evidence of the Anglo-Saxons that it is. You get market crosses, of course, but uh, you get standing crosses. But this has never, nobody's ever spotted any inscriptions on London Stone. So what is my conclusion? Well London Stone is a myth. There's a piece of stone which it currently resides in the Museum of London, but much bigger than that is the myths that surround it. Whatever London Stone's origin was in origin, now it's that myth. And the way that myth has grown over the years tells us, I think, more about London and its people and its people's vision of London than The stone itself does. Um, Nikki French, little novel, this novel, detective story called uh, Tuesday's Gone. Her heroine looks at London Stone and says, It looks like a completely ordinary piece of rock and it means what we want it to mean. Mm -hmm. And even Peter Ackroyd. It was once London's guardian spirit, which is total (laughs) nonsense, and perhaps it is still. Uh, I think I agree with the last half of that uh, sentence. You can respond that although it was never, in fact, London's golden spirit in the past, it will, if enough people believe in it, assume that goal in the future. Thank
0: you. Thank you, John. Um, Yeah, that was the most methodical thing I've uh, seen. Thank you, that was brilliant. Um, We're going to have a short break, grab a drink, and then come back for... um, very brief episodic break, and then any questions or comments, or what's about the lay line, and what about other things? There's for buried there, whatever you want to say. Um, <laughs> afterwards, thank you again, John. We'll see you back here about 10 15 minutes. Thank you.